Well, hello and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Great to have you along with us this week. Going to be talking today about more customs and traditions of Advent, including some Christmas music that's really Advent music. We're also going to have an update on the German synodal way and the importance of clarity in church teaching. And as we prepare to celebrate the Feast of the Immaculate Conception this Thursday, December the 8th, I'm going to share some insight into the medieval controversy over the doctrine and the role that was played by the subtle doctor, Blessed John Duns Scotus. And speaking of Advent customs, Sunday was the second Sunday of Advent, traditionally known in England as Stir Up Sunday. Uh, after the opening prayer of the Mass, stir up our hearts, O Lord, to make ready the ways of thine only begotten Son. So the words stir up were taken by my old English ancestors as a reminder that this was the day to begin preparing the Christmas pudding. So stir up Sunday was the day when English families would traditionally gather together to mix the Christmas pudding. You have to keep stirring it so each member of the family would take turns stirring the mixture while offering a prayer or for the little ones, uh, maybe a Christmas wish. And then there's the tradition of stirring the pudding from east to west. I'm assuming that means anti-clockwise uh, in honor of the Magi, the three wise men who came from the east to visit the baby Jesus. So just a little Anglophile Advent trivia for you. And we're going to share more customs and traditions later. But for now, I'd like to begin with the extraordinary form gospel for Stir Up Sunday taken from Matthew 11, verses 2 through 10. When John, who was in prison, heard what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or are we to wait for another? Jesus answered them, Go back and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the poor have the good news proclaimed to them. And blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. As John's disciples were departing, Jesus spoke to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swaying in the wind? Then what did you go out to see? Someone robed in fine clothing? Those who wear fine clothing are found in royal palaces. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and far more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. Thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. Of course, the John in this Gospel is John the Baptist. And the first question is, what was he doing in prison? And of course, he had been cast into prison because he publicly rebuked King Herod who was living in adultery with the wife of his stepbrothers, not to mention that he was also lusting after her daughter. Now, there's an important lesson here, that we should not be deterred from speaking the truth, even about public figures, and even though we will suffer for it. St. John had a prophetic ministry. His job was to proclaim the truth, so he did not try to gain favor with Herod through flattery or by remaining silent, nor did he wring his hands because somebody might accuse him of weaponizing the Sixth and the Ninth Commandments. No, he rebuked King Herod because he knew what every Catholic from the Pope on down should know, that it is better and nobler, not to mention more profitable for our salvation, to be a martyr for the truth, as St. John the Baptist was, 
than to compromise the faith. As baptized Catholics, we too share in the prophetic ministry of Christ. Now, the next question is, why did John send his disciples to ask Jesus if the Messiah or if the Messiah was yet to come? John certainly knew who Jesus was. At the visitation, when he was still in St. Elizabeth's womb, St. John leapt in the presence of Christ like David before the Ark of the Covenant. He's the one who said to the disciples, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He was the herald of God, God's messenger, as it says in, in today's gospel, or in the traditional translation, literally, his angel. Jesus calls him Elijah, the Elijah who was destined to return and make straight the way of the Lord. He was the one of whom our Lord said, Amen, I say to you, among those born of women, no one is greater than John the Baptist. In fact, John the Baptist is only one of three persons whose birthday we celebrate in the liturgical calendar, the others being Jesus and Mary. And that's some good company. So the baptizer wasn't confused about the identity of Jesus. Rather, he sent his disciples to Jesus. They too might be convinced that he was the Messiah. As John said, he must increase and I must decrease. He wanted his followers to hear it for themselves from Jesus because it was time for them to stop following the messenger and start following the Messiah. And likewise for us, we, we are not primarily followers of our pastors or of the bishops or even the Pope, but of Christ. And the bishops can take a lesson from this as well. Like John the Baptist, they participate in the prophetic ministry. They are the official teachers of the church. It's their solemn duty to see to it that the faithful entrusted to them are well instructed in the faith. And the same goes for Catholic parents with their children. So what did Christ say to the disciples of John the Baptist? He said, go back and tell John what you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the good news preached to them. In other words, all the prophecies of the Messiah are being fulfilled in me. And from this, John knew that they should be convinced that Jesus is the promised Messiah that he was preaching about. And then John, or Jesus rather, asked the crowds, what did you go out to see? A reed blowing in the wind? A man dressed in soft clothes? No, a prophet and more than a prophet. Jesus praised the faithfulness of St. John, who would not be discouraged from exercising his sacred prophetic ministry, either by the commands of Herod or even by fear of punishment and death, and also to approve the austere life of St. John, who lived in the desert and wore camel's hair and ate locusts and wild honey in order to encourage us to mortify our flesh and to do penance, which was traditional for Advent as a preparation for Christmas. And then Jesus adds, blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. Now, what's that about? Well, it's because there were those who were scandalized at his humility, his poverty, his suffering and death on the cross. In other words, since Jesus was not the kind of Messiah they were expecting, they would despise and reject him. When really, the more he humbled himself, the more they should have loved and honored him. So why does the church set this gospel before us on the second Sunday of Advent? And the answer is so that, like the disciples of St. John the Baptist, we can recognize Jesus as our Lord and Savior by his glorious works and by fulfillment of prophecy. 
and that we can follow the baptizer's example of making ourselves worthy of the grace of redemption of Christ by preparing the way of the Lord in our hearts by our faithful observance of Advent. Like the prayer says, stir up our hearts, O Lord, make them ready uh, to make ready the ways of thine only begotten Son, that by his coming we may be worthy to serve thee with purified minds. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Now, since the gospel for the second Sunday of Advent begins with John the Baptist in prison, the traditional moral topic for this Sunday was adversity. Namely, what can and should console us in adversity, in which so many of us are getting a boatload of these days? Well, there's a number of answers. Number one, um, what should console us in adversity is the firm belief that everything is ordered by God's providence and that no evil can befall us except by his permission and that he never allows us to suffer more than we can handle with his help. Such suffering is for our own good. Number two, that if we call on him in adversity, God will help us, especially whenever it's helpful for our own salvation. And thus to encourage us, he says in the Psalms, if you call out to me in time of trouble, I will rescue you and you will honor me. Or in Romans where St. Paul says, if God is for us, who then can be against us? Number three uh, is the realization that it's really useless to resist divine providence. You look at the scriptures, you see that those who try to uh, um, resist the will of God find, wind up uh, you know, disgraced, like uh, Jonah, for example. You look in the book of Job, God is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who then has resisted him and remained unscathed? And then number four, we should realize that our sufferings, when born with patience and obedience, lose their sting and bring us merit and reward. Like St. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.17, our temporary light afflictions are preparing us for an incomparable weight of eternal glory. And then lastly, according to Thomas Akempis in The Imitation of Christ, he says, If thou confide in the Lord, strength will be given thee from heaven, and the world and the flesh shall be made subject to thee. Neither shalt thou fear thine enemy, the devil, if thou be armed with faith and signed with the cross of Christ. Set thyself then like a good and faithful servant of Christ to bear man the cross of thy Lord, crucified for love of thee. Nothing is more acceptable to God, nothing more wholesome for thee in this world than to suffer willingly for Christ. Therefore, the thing to remember about suffering this Advent is that suffering well-born makes us saints. And that's no nonsense. All right, when we come back, we're going to have an update on the what's happening with the German Synodal Way, as it's called. <clears throat> I'm going to talk about... Uh, the Vatican's reaction, and uh, also talk about clarity in regards to the teaching of the church and, and the importance of that. And uh, before we take our break, just quickly, I want to mention that this January the 14th, we're going to be hosting our evangelization conference at the Sacred Heart Chapel. So uh, uh, all-day event, half-day event, featured speakers, Johnny Romero and Terry Barber. So uh, check that out. Go to pmpr.org, call the office, and we'll be right back after this.
Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. As I'm sure you know, dioceses around the world are participating in the, the preparations for the big synod on synodality. And none, of course, is more controversial than the synodal way of, in Germany. Now, according to a report in the National Catholic Register from a couple of days ago, the German synodal way was designed from the outset to avoid legal sanctions while simultaneously creating pressure on the church to change Catholic teaching. Now, I don't suppose that's what uh, Pope Francis had in mind when he called the Synod on Sodality, but that's what's happening in Germany, according to Thomas Sternberg, co-founder of the German Synodal Way with Cardinal Reinhold Marx and former president of the Central Committee of German Catholics. And he said the controversial process wanted to achieve changes to the church's teaching on homosexuality, the ordination of women, and suspects. Now, on the 2nd of December, Sternberg said the synodal way was proceeding, quote, much more successfully than I had thought. And in light of the Vatican's interventions, uh, recent interventions against the synodal way, he said it had, be, it had become clear, quote, it was right not to use the form of a synod, as that would have been sanctioned by canon law and would have given canon law properly then also the possibility to prohibit something like that. So translation, the word synod means council, and canon law has rules about councils. Synodal is a neologism. It's a brand new made-up word that doesn't mean anything. You know, what is a synodal way? Well, Steinberg says the synodal way is a non-binding discussion process. Only in this way, he says, could the participants, uh, participants, quote, actually operate freely. Then, he said, even prefabricated critical objections that have been raised by Rome come to nothing. Okay, in other words, since the nodal way is not a binding, it's exempt from a censure, censure church. Now, strictly speaking, that's nonsense, of course, but he's right that the canon law has no real recourse because the synod isn't really doing anything except, you know, creating confusion. Cardinal Reinhard Marx has likewise acknowledged that the process isn't a synod, but called it a process sui generis, which means that it's unique to itself. So what's the point then of, of this, you know, synodal way? Well, Sternberg's a professional politician. And he described in detail some of the political tools and tactics that the organizers of the German Synodal Way have followed in their pursuit of achieving change in the church's teaching. On the one hand, he said, it was clear that participants could not, quote, decide the question of the ordination of women or the question of the abolition of celibacy in Germany. However, he said, I am a politician. I know the processes and developments are needed in order to make topics worthy of discussion in the first place. We have to talk about it, and we have to make demands. Only through pressure does real change come about. Okay, thank you, Karl Marx. And he specifically mentioned the synodal ways text on ordaining women to the priesthood, on clericalism, on homosexuality, etc. So, like union in the hand and altar girls, the Germans seem to think that the church will cave in, given enough pressure, given enough disobedience, uh, that they will finally bless their, their motives. Well, the good news is that the Vatican last week published warnings about another schism coming out of Germany, which is, you know, an oblique reference to Martin Luther. And the prefect of the Dicastria Bishop said the synodal way suggestions, quote, hurt the communion of the church by sowing doubt and confusion 
among the people of God. And that's what I wanted to talk about here. There's a lot of confusion in the church today. Good Catholics want to know, love, and serve God, but they find it difficult to do so in the baffling circumstances. People have always asked, how do I know what is God's will for, night, for, will for my life? But increasingly, they wonder, is it even possible to know what is God's will for my life? You know, and I'm, I'm convinced that it's not an inscrutable mystery. You know, we can all agree that not everything in life is clear. But that's why the fundamentals of our faith are so important. To do God's will, we should be concerned primarily with those things that are clear. <clears throat> Pardon me. Psalm 19.9 says, The precepts of the Lord are right, causing the heart to rejoice. The commands of the Lord are clear, giving light to the eyes. Not everything in life is clear, but because of his love for us, the Lord has made clear the most important things through his church and his word. St. Luke says that he wrote his gospel precisely so that you may learn the unquestioned authenticity of the teachings you have received. The late Father Al Lauer, God rest his soul, said, The Lord provides clarity for us because clarity is usually the basis of certainty, and certainty is the basis for victory over temptations, unity in the body of Christ, and total commitment to the Lord. What would we do without certainty about God's love? What would be the basis for Christianity? God's forgiveness and, and mercy, his plan of salvation, the coming judgment, eternal happiness, etc. Hence, the devil's very first temptation of a human being was to sow confusion and doubt about the clarity and certainty of God's command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Satan then tried the same tactic when he tempted Jesus in the desert. At his baptism, the very voice of God the Father proclaimed Jesus to be his beloved son. But Satan tempts our Lord to question this. If you are the son of God, he says, command these stones to become loaves of bread. His reply, as it is written, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. The Lord Jesus overcame all the devil's temptations, not simply before God, but because he obeyed it. And there is the example for us. God is not the God of confusion, but of peace. His word and the deposit of faith that he left with the church give us clear direction. And so it must be. St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 8, if the bugle call is unclear, who will get ready for battle? How can, how can we resist temptation if we're not clear about something being sinful? Pope John Paul II taught, if we're not certain about the truth, how can we put our whole life on the line? This is the reason that he taught the importance of catechesis and said that catechesis is therefore for adults of every age, including the elderly, no less than for children, adolescents, and the young. Likewise, um, Pope St. Paul VI taught that evangelization is not just for non-believers, but for Catholics as well. He said, another sign of love will be the effort to give Christians not doubts and uncertainties, but certainties that are solid because they are anchored in the word of God. The faithful need these certainties for their Christian life. They have a right to them as children of God who abandon themselves entirely into his arms. This is not the Middle Ages. These are, you know, two of the most recent popes. 
John Paul II told a gathering of U.S. bishops, indeed, only when your teaching is clear, unambiguous, and united will it rise above the clash of conflicting opinions with the forcefulness, the forcefulness and the power of truth. It's the duty of bishops to follow St. Paul's admonition to Timothy and guard the rich deposit of faith from falsehood, from confusion, and from lack of clarity. For this is the basis for victory, unity, and total commitment to the Lord. Now, in today's reality, such zealous promotion of the deposit of faith on the part of the episcopate uh, is not always so forthcoming. There are many exceptions, of course. Uh, Bishop Strickland immediately comes to mind. But it's up to us to know well the clear teaching of Christ and his church, the creed, the commandments, the sacraments, prayer, the beatitudes, the precepts of the church, the spiritual and corporal works of mercy. What's God's will for your life? St. Paul tells us it is the will of God that all men be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. God wants you to be faithful. He wants you to be holy. Now, I'm currently working on a book of uh, fundamental apologetics. And, and why do that? I mean, especially when there are so many already. You know, I got involved in Catholic apologetics way back in the 1990s. But I believe that the need for Catholic apologetics is greater now than ever before. And not primarily to order to, you know, in order to bring Bible Christians back into the church but rather for rank-and-file Catholics to understand for themselves and be able to articulate why their Catholic faith is eminently reasonable. In a day and time when politicians and professors, and God help us, even some priests and prelates are abandoning reason and embracing and even promoting confusion and irrationality and trying to change the unchangeable, the need is greater than ever before for ordinary Catholics to, to have clear and concise reasons for the hope that is in them. Thomas Aquinas defined truth as conforming the mind to reality, not trying to conform reality to whatever pops into your mind. So St. Paul tells us in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to the world or to this age, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds so that you will be able to discern the will of God and to know what is good and acceptable and perfect. And that's no nonsense. Okay, it is Advent. We are uh, smack in the middle of the season of Advent, although it's a little longer this year. Uh, and uh, I wanted to talk about Advent and, and some of the customs of Advent uh, over the rest of this segment and probably the next one as well. We talked about it a, a bit last week. We know that the word Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, which means arrival or coming. So Advent's the celebration of the coming of Christ. And whether you open windows on an Advent calendar or light candles uh, or, or, or look at the Christmas decorations going up around town, early as it may be, you are celebrating the upcoming arrival of a huge holiday. And, you know, for some, especially in our culture, Advent and Christmas are synonymous. You know, judging from the store, from radio and TV, you'd think it was Christmas already. But in fact, Advent uh, is a separate time period and, and has a separate purpose. While Christmas celebrates the birth of Jesus, and it 
Christmas starts on Christmas, doesn't end there. Uh, Advent is considered a time of preparation for his coming. And we're not just looking at the one coming, one that's already happened, but uh, another that we wait for with great anticipation and joy, which is to say the second coming. Advent also uh, marks the beginning of the liturgical year. And what is that exactly? It's uh, the church year, the ecclesiastical year. Uh, It's the day or the cycle of days uh, observed by uh, the, the liturgy of the Catholic Church to commemorate the life of Jesus Christ. And it begins each year on the first Sunday. So it's not too late to still say Happy New Year or Happy Church New Year. And Advent, of course, uh, begins on a different Sunday uh, each year, a different date, because Christmas is a fixed holiday. It's always on the 25th of December. And so Advent, beginning four weeks before Christmas, uh, begins on uh, a different Sunday every year. Okay, we're going to come back talking about when Advent started, customs of Advent around the world, traditions of Advent, and lots more. When we come back with more no-nonsense Catholic, right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stay with us. Welcome back to No Nonsense Cat. Like talking about Advent and uh, how Advent begins each year on the Sunday after St. Andrew's Day, or uh, more simply put, the first of the four Sundays before Christmas and not including Christmas. So therefore, the beginning date changes every year depending on when Christmas falls. Uh, this year it started on Sunday of November 27th. And it seems early, it's because Christmas is on a Sunday this year, which actually gives us a Um, in 2023, Advent will begin on Sunday, December 3rd. The year after that, it'll be Sunday, December 1st. But Advent always ends on Christmas Eve, December. Now, the, the truth is that nobody knows for certain when the season of Advent started being perpetuous of Tour, <clears throat> pardon me, who lived in the 5th century, decreed a period of fasting before Christmas that started on November the 11th, or uh, St. Mark. You know, 75, 100 years later, the Council of Tours specifically mentioned the Advents. We find a clue in traditions surrounding the Feast of the Epiphany. Christians used to be baptized on the Epiphany. And, of course, they would go through the catechumen at the period of preparation prior to baptism. But uh, whatever its origin, of course, it is an important spiritual time for, for people all around the world. And it is celebrated in many ways. There are, of course, Advent hymns and carols that are specific to the season. Uh, here in Los Angeles, on the 1st of December, there's a local radio station that starts playing Christmas music 24-7. And they do it every year. And, of course, you know, diehard Catholics know that the Christmas season does and and that's why there's no Christmas song sung at Mass until the Midnight Mass on the 24th. So, you know, for the next couple of weeks, we'll continue to have Advent hymns and carols to help us celebrate the spirit of the season. Uh, perhaps the most familiar that you hear at Mass is O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, which goes all the way back to the 8th or 9th century. But there are others. Um, o Savior of the Nations Come is an Advent chant that was... Um, set to music, beautiful, haunting uh, uh, 
setting composed by Johann Sebastian Bach. There's also the chant version of the Alma by Palestrina. It's just magnificent. And then there's the traditional Latin hymns like the. I must say, though, that I don't mind the Christmas music on the radio. You know, it's, this is the only time of the year that you can into a secular radio station and hear songs with the holy name of Jesus in them. Not to mention not having to worry about hearing anything that's, you know, offensive or sexually explicit or whatever. But as a former professional musician, I especially appreciate that at no other time of the year do you hear such a country, classical, choral music, all together, all complementing each other. And all um, on the profound theme of celebrating the birth of Christ. So as far as secular radio is concerned, it really is the most wonderful time of the year. Plus, there are secular Christmas songs that, if you think about it, are technically really Advent songs. And they put up a list on the Church Pop website. Uh, and so here's a few examples. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. Obviously, it's it's not a song about Christmas, but, you know, the, the store is having sales and people shopping and decorating. So it's not Christmas yet. It's preparing for Christmas. Or uh, likewise, the song Silver Bells. Soon it will be Christmas Day, right? And shopping and waiting and preparing for Christmas. Uh, let's see. Santa Claus is coming to town. All the songs about how Santa Claus are coming are definitely more appropriate for Advent than they are for Christmas. It says that they should remind us to take the penitential part of Advent seriously and, you know, shape up because not just Santa Claus is coming, but Jesus is coming. So um, all I want for Christmas teeth. Okay, here another song preparing for Christmas, albeit a silly one. But still, this kid is clearly uh, still in Advent. Or all I want for Christmas is you. It's really about waiting, waiting for the one that the singer loves, just as we too are waiting for the one that we love to come on Christmas and to come again at the end of time. Um, Last Christmas by George Myram. Uh, this is another song with a the theme of just. and anticipates that Christmas, this Christmas is a better time to come. <laughs> uh, but one that's really not is I'll Be Home for Christmas. Beautiful song that was a, a hit for Bing Crosby during World War II. No doubt reflected on a deployed soldier and their families. I'll be home for Christmas if only in my dreams. Now there's a number of Christmas songs about wishing a place or a person and they're all, uh, in a way, symbolic of our Advent longing for Jesus to come as maybe at Christmas and to come again. What about White Christmas? Again, a song that, that anticipates Christmas. And uh, <laughs> since it remembers happy Christmases of the past, but is hoping for a coming Christmas. Oh, and, and in the way that we remember the first happy Christmas at Advent and wait for the second coming. Songs are really Advent songs, uh, secular Christmas songs. How about Frosty the Snowman? Frosty the Snowman, this is one of the many uh, children's Christmas songs that were introduced in Autry. Uh, the first was Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And reported 
that he did because it was a huge hit for him. Possibly, I think it was the biggest hit he ever had. And then he children's song every Christmas after that for years on end, including Frosty the Snowman, Here Comes Santa Claus, Santa Claus is Coming to Town, Up on the Housetops, and some others that are not so well known, like uh, You Can See Old Santa Claus When You Find Him in Your Heart, and I Wish My Mom Would Marry Santa Claus. Anyhow, Frosty the Snowman ends with the words, I'll be back on Christmas Day, suggesting it's not merely a winter song, but that it's taking place in Advent. And then next, from the uh, the musical Anti-Man, you see that the song actually in the lyric, it sets it at the week after Thanksgiving. So the song takes place during Advent, uh, and it really doesn't reflect a very good spirit of waiting, uh, but it's certainly sympathetic to people who like to decorate for Christmas early. Uh, you know, my family, we have our own tradition. We kind of split the difference. Uh, and then next is another Gene Autry tune, one that we've already mentioned, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. <clears throat> and we're all familiar with the story of poor Rudolph, who didn't fit it. And, but there is, I mean, you can squeeze some Christian symbolism out of his waiting and his suffering. His light uh, guides Santa's sleigh, like some being symbolic of the light of Christ coming into each and every home. And then finally, it's the most wonderful time of the year. Another song, great Andy Williams version of that. Uh, and so you have some uh, another tune anticipating all the joys of Christmas, talking about everything that's going to be done during the Christmas season and waiting for these things to happen. So the, on the radio or at the store, I mean, you can't escape it <laughs> when you, if you, or, you know, as soon as you get in your home. And keep in mind that some of it is actually, I mean, technically, Advent music. And of course, besides music, Advent has various symbols uh, that vary around the world. But one of the common traditions is the use of a wreath and candles. The wreath is evergreen, usually fir or holly or, or spruce. And we actually, uh, and it, we use the evergreen to symbolize eternal life. Um, we actually have a ceramic wreath with a Celtic knot, but then we'll decorate with holly or with, um, you know, branches from the Christmas tree, that kind of thing. Each of these uh, wreaths has four candles in various colors. For Catholics, uh, three symbolizing reflection and humility, and one rose symbolizing joy. That's for Gaudete Sunday. These correspond to the liturgical colors of the Sundays of Advent. And sometimes a white candle is added in uh, and lit on Christmas Eve. Now, our wreath doesn't have a place for a fifth candle, but I'm thinking this year that we might just place a large white candle, uh, just place it in the center and light it up on, uh, on Christmas Eve. Now, Advent has uh, four themes, kind of traditional themes or virtues, and this does uh, vary a little bit. But the most common themes are hope, peace, joy on Caudete Sunday, and love. And Catholic tradition includes lighting a specific candle each of the Sundays of Advent to symbolize those four virtues. Next up is the Advent calendar. A window that you open up, and there might be a little, a little treat in there, candy or 
or something of the like. Uh, we actually have a kind of a wooden cabinet that has 20 little drawers. You need more than just, just the one calendar. Um, and in itself, there's different accounts as to who invented the advent calendar, but <clears throat> the best I could find in the 19th century, it was a company called Reichhold and Lang, or Lang, uh, uh, that started manufacturing and selling advent calendars. But apparently, the partner's mother, Gerhard Lang, uh, his mom created a calendar with treats behind it for little Gerhard and his siblings to enjoy on the days leading up to Christmas. And then through the years, others have put their own tradition, including putting um, little pictures behind the windows or chocolates or, or Bible verses and so on. And Advent, you know, of course, it's celebrated all around the world. Uh, Roman Catholics, Anglicans, Episcopalians, Lutherans, uh, many of the Protestant churches, even the ones that are all have their own traditions when it comes to the season. Uh, in Ireland, for example, families put the candle in the window. Or in China, they use paper lanterns. And uh, in Mexico, they have Las Posadas, the uh, procession where the children uh, go around to commemorate the journey of Mary and Joseph. And then, of course, the nativity. How about that when we come back with lots more no-nonsense Catholic conception and blessed John Duns Scotus. I'll be right back. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. Our final custom or tradition for Advent is the creche scene from the French word for crib or the nativity scene. Uh, when I was a boy, they used to have a living nativity scene. Um, they'd set up under a huge fir tree out in front of our city hall. And the, uh, the fir tree was uh, decorated like a big Christmas tree. And they had the Christmas tree lighting and the living nativity. And uh, you might be interested to know that the nativity scene was introduced to Europe in the 13th century by St. Francis Assisi after his pilgrimage to the Holy Land. And he set up a living nativity inside of a cave in Greccio, Italy, inviting both his fellow friars and the townspeople to join in a special celebration that included Holy Mass. Now, according to St. Bonaventure, St. Francis told a friend, I want to do something that will recall the memory of that child who was born in Bethlehem to see with bodily eyes the inconveniences of his infancy, how he lay in the manger, and how the ox and ass stood by. So the very first crescent was living the and uh, traditionally, for nativity scenes in both homes and churches, the Christ child is not placed in the manger until Christmas Eve at midnight. Remember when our, our kids were little, uh, the first thing they would do on Christmas morning was look for the baby. The traditional day to set up a nativity scene is the 9th of December, which is the day after the Immaculate Conception. And that's the final thing I wanted to talk about today. It's coming up this week. Tomorrow, in fact, is the 8th of December, Feast of the Immaculate Conception. It's a holy day of obligation here in the United States, so you need to get to church. on uh, The Immaculate Conception is the patron of the states. So uh, we have Mary under that title. Uh, 
So now, well, the Immaculate Conception was a constant doctrine. It was always believed by the church, always believed that without sin, even though there was a feast of the Immaculate Conception that had been celebrated for centuries, a controversy arose in the Middle Ages see how to reconcile the quote-unquote problem of Mary's freedom from only with Christ's death would the stain of original sin be removed. And many of the great philosophers and theologians of the West were divided on the subject. That is until the argument of John Duns Scotus. Duns Scotus, Latin for Duns the Scot. He was a Scottish Franciscan. His name was John Duns. But, uh, you know, he was, uh, I don't know, maybe there's a lot of John Duns back in those days. So he's Duns the Scot, a Franciscan priest. He was a university professor, a philosopher, a theologian. Christian philosopher, theologians of the high Middle Ages, together with Thomas Aquinas, St. Bonaventure, and William Ockham. Now, citing the principle of Anselm of Canterbury, Dechuit ergo fecit. That is, he, God, could do it, it was appropriate, therefore he did it. So Duns Scotus devised the following to the question, why would God have Mary be immaculately conceived without original sin? Can he point out all other human beings? After all, she sings in her magnificent Savior. But there's more than one way to save a person. You know, if somebody falls into a ditch, you can come along and pull them out and, and they're saved from the ditch. Or you can, you know, stand in front of the ditch and keep them from falling in in the first place, which was uh, a point that through the Mary was conceived without stain of original sin. Scotus argued that God could have brought her She was never an original sin or that she was in sin only for an instant, or that she was in sin for some period of time and then purged of that sin at the last moment. But, he said, whichever of these options was most excellent should be attributed to Mary. Now, this you know, apparently careful statement provoked a storm of opposition at Paris and uh, suggested the line, he fired France for Mary without spot, in the famous poem by uh, Jeremy. In the end, Scotus's position was officially hailed as correct expression. And the argument goes like this. Was it fitting? The answer is yes. It was good for God that his mother was born without any stain. This is the most honorable thing for him to do. Second, could God make his mother be born without stain of original sin? Well, yes, God can do anything. And therefore, he could ordain that his mother be conceived. And finally, did God do so or not? And the answer is yes. When God knows that something is better to do, he does it. Therefore, God caused Mary to be conceived untainted by original sin. Uh, Dunscot, the four Declaration of the Dogma, of the Immaculate Conception. Uh, in, in these words, for conception, Mary was preserved, free from the stain of original sin, in view of the miracle. And finally, uh, Duns Scotus had a penchant for wearing pointy hats. Uh, it's been said that this is what inspired the popular image of 
like Merlin because of the wisdom of John Scotus. His followers were known as Dunsmen, and they took to wearing pointy hats as a badge of honor. However, hundreds of years later, by the mid-16th century, medieval scholasticism had come to be seen as naturally by the Protestant reformers. Scotus thought began to be considered as hopelessly behind the times or just plain stupid. You know, thus the, the pointy hats of the Dunsmen or Duns caps, you can see where this is this rather ignominious new reputation. So the Dunce cap is first mentioned in 1624. And by the 19th century, you saw the familiar disciplinary punishment for slow or unruly school to sit in the corner wearing a paper cone on their heads. Catholics, on the other hand, especially medievalists like myself, revere. He was given the title Dr. Suttilis, the subtle doctor. Pope who famously called the Second Vatican Council, recommended the reading of Duns theology students during his rather momentous pontificate. So here you see someone who, uh, you know, was the first churchman in an official document to use the word adjourning, saying that uh, theology students should really be reading the writings of this medieval doctor of the church. And then uh, John Duns was beatified in 1993. So today, you celebrate the Feast of the Immaculate Conception uh, to say a prayer to blessed John Duns um the great be able to define that dark clarity and certainty which kind of wraps everything all up that nonsense okay uh, i want to thank you again um before we go first off i still having a little trouble with my program and the terry and jesse show uh, uh, the podcast on Apple. So make sure to go to vmpr.org and you can check out the show pages there and you see all the different platforms that the podcasts are on. Or you can certainly, uh, while you are there, download our Virgin Most Powerful Radio smartphone app. Best way to get our podcasts. They're hosted, they're right there on the app and uh, and they're with you all on your smartphone without having to go anywhere. Also, this coming January the 14th, which is just just weeks away now. It's unbelievable. Uh, January 14, 2023, Virgin Most Powerful will be hosting uh, it's featuring uh, Johnny Romero and our own Terry Barber, the man who literally wrote the book on lay evangelization. The admission is $35 for a single, $60 for a married couple. The online registration is already open, so you can go now to vmpr.org and register online, or you can call our office toll-free at 877 and register by phone. That's for the January 14th 
the MPR Evangelization Conference. And speaking of conferences, coming up before you know it, it's our annual spiritual March 24th, or 25th rather, and 26th, March 25 and 26, 2023. And <clears throat> this year we are going to have uh, the same lineup as we had last year with our most successful conference. Ripperger will be there, the, the uh, uh, famed exorcist, our own Jesse Romero will be emceeing, Dr. Ann Schneider and Kyle Clements from Libra Cristo Deliverance Ministry. They will all be there. And we're going to welcome a very special guest, Bishop Joseph uh, Once again this year, the conference is going to be held not at the Sacred Heart Chapel, but at St. Joseph Catholic Church in Pomona. And the reason is that that church is much larger, it can accommodate more people than our chapel, and it is a beautifully appointed old church. Beautiful, uh, the, the um, appointments there, the sanctuary, the altar, uh, you are going to love it. So I, you know, if you're able to attend, I suggest last year even with the bigger venue we had to close registration early because it sold out it's our most popular conference we have a large volume of people to attend make sure to register soon admission is $95 for and $180 for a married couple registration is open now it's already filling up so if you want to attend, do not hesitate to visit vmpr.org and to register online or to call us toll-free at 877-526-2151. Let me do that again. I bobbled a little bit. 877-526-2151. Reserve your place. Most powerful radio annual spiritual warfare conference, March 25th, 26th. 2003 all right we will be back uh we'll be back next with uh everything as usual and i hope to see you then feast of the immaculate conception make sure you get yourself to church uh tomorrow or this evening the massive anticipation you got to work tomorrow uh whatever it is Thank you so much for listening, and may God richly bless you and your family from everybody here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio.